You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We have been talking about prejudices the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about prejudices because we're looking at a text of Scripture where the Lord forced even these bigoted apostles to get over their animosity, their hatred for the Gentiles. And so we are in Acts chapter 10, so I would invite you to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 43. Prejudices are easy things to identify, but they are hard things to get over, are they not? Prejudices are easy things to identify, but they are hard things to get over. It is easy for us to identify who it is we don't like and why we don't like them. Maybe they're a Muslim, maybe they're from another nation, maybe their skin is black. And prejudices are hard to kill, particularly when you think that God shares your prejudices. I am convinced that God is a Niners fan. And that that is His favorite football team. I was more convinced in the 80s and the 90s that that was God's team. I am starting to doubt that in recent years. I would also be convinced that God is an American and that America is His favorite nation. And that He is a Republican by voter registration. We have this tendency to remake God in our image. And we think that whatever our prejudices are, whatever our partialities are, whatever our favoritisms might be, that God certainly shares those things. And God made man in His image, and man has been remaking God in His own image ever since. And that is how we conceive of God. But then suddenly we find out that God doesn't share our partialities. That God doesn't share our favoritisms. And that humbles us. Because we are prideful, in the midst of our partiality. We have prejudices, and at the root of our prejudices is our pride. And really, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and our prejudices give us a way to comfortably express our pride against other people. And to look down our nose at somebody else because they have a different economic status than we do, a different affiliation nationally than we do, a different skin color or different partialities themselves. And so we look down upon somebody else and it allows us to feel comfortable thinking of ourselves so highly when we can have us in our mind and then somebody else far down below us that we can look down on them. And our prejudices just give us an excuse to express our pride. And we don't really think of it in terms of pride, but really there's no sin that you and I cannot, that you and I can commit that is not rooted in pride. And prejudices just express that pride. So how humbling it must be to wake up some morning and to find out that God doesn't share your prejudices. To find out that God may be a Cowboys fan. To find out that God, maybe America is not God's favorite country and maybe He's not a Republican by voter registration. How shocking it must be to wake up and find out that all of the things that I show partiality to, all of my favoritisms and all of my prejudices are not shared by God at all. That's humbling, isn't it? And I think that that's what Peter was, humble. When suddenly the Lord showed to him that vision that we looked at last week and said, Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. 
And Peter had grown up his whole life with this prejudice against Gentiles, showing partiality to the Jews and thinking that God shared his partiality and his prejudices. And God had to say, no, Peter, it's not the way it is. I think it's interesting to notice the difference between Peter and Paul. And if you would expect anybody to be racist, it would be Paul. Fanatical Pharisee. Fanatical isolationist. A law keeper to the minutest detail. Hebrew of Hebrews. If there was a Jewish Jew, it was Paul. He was fanatical in his Judaism. And I think that in the heart of Saul of Tarsus was a dislike for Gentiles that made Peter's pale by comparison. Yet we read nothing in Scripture of Saul ever having to be taught a lesson about racism or prejudices or bigotry like the Lord had to show to Peter. Why is that? Why is it that we read nothing about the Apostle Paul having to have a vision in which God has to explain to him that Gentiles are not unclean as he had always assumed? You know when I think that happened? On the road to Damascus. He did get a vision, didn't he? A bright light, and the Lord said, I'm calling you as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Okay. His whole life had crumbled. Everything emotionally, everything spiritually, everything that he had to be proud of, all of his accomplishments, all of his acquisitions, all of his success, his influence, his affluence, all of that just came crumbling to the ground and God finally had a man that he could build from scratch. And when he said to Saul, I'm appointing you as my messenger, my apostle to the Gentiles, no argument. All right. Anything you say. And from that moment, Saul understood. All my Jewish partiality goes out the door. It doesn't come into my life or my ministry or the church from this point forward. Peter didn't get such a commission. So Peter had to have the vision, which is why the Lord showed him all the animals, to explain to Peter what he had explained to Paul on the road to Damascus. No Jew, no Gentile. Those distinctions, as petty as they are, make no difference whatsoever. So Peter, get over your prejudices and get on with your ministry. And last week we looked at how Peter had come down from the rooftop and the three Gentiles showed up at the gate right at the precise moment that Peter was thinking about the vision that he has. And he seems to push all of that aside as he invites these men in and gives them lodging for the night. Now we have looked at how the Lord prepared Cornelius for his meeting with Peter. We have looked at how the Lord prepared Peter for his meeting with Cornelius. And now Luke is going to show to us the next two things in this whole unfolding of this inviting Gentiles into the church. And that is, first of all, Peter's meeting with Cornelius, and then second, Peter's message to Cornelius. And those are the two things that we're going to focus on this morning. Peter's meeting with Cornelius in verses 23 through verse 33, and then Peter's message to Cornelius in verse 34 through the end of verse 43. First, Peter's meeting with Cornelius. You look what it says in Acts chapter 10. Somehow my Bible got its pages changed there. On the following day, on the next day, he got up and he went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied Peter. So it's a two-day journey for the three messengers from Cornelius and Caesarea down to Joppa. That's two days. So they leave on one day and they show up the next day at noon as Peter's getting hungry and ready to eat. Peter stays, allows them to stay with him that night. On the next morning they leave. It's on the following day that they finally get to Joppa. So we have a four-day interval here between the time that Cornelius sees the vision until... Peter finally arrives with these men. And Peter doesn't go alone. It's not just Peter and these three Gentiles who came from Cornelius. Acts chapter 11, verse 12, Peter says there were six brethren from Joppa who went up to Caesarea with him to the house of Cornelius. Now, why did he bring six people with him? 
It says that some of the brethren from Joppa went up to Caesarea with Peter. Why did they go along? Were they just curious? They have these seven Orthodox believing Jews who are traveling with these three devout Gentiles and two worlds are about to collide. I think that they went along not only because they were curious, but I think Peter wanted some witnesses to whatever it is that might transpire up in Caesarea. And so there are six who go with him, ten people traveling all together. And Peter arrives at the house of Cornelius on the following day. He enters Caesarea and Cornelius was waiting for them. And unbeknownst to Peter, Cornelius had called together all of his family and his close friends. So Cornelius' household is there. Peter thinks he's going to see Cornelius. Peter shows up and unknown to Peter is the fact that Cornelius has a small crowd waiting to hear him. He has invited his household is there, his family is there, and his friends are there. I would imagine there's a crowd at least the size of this here. Remember, Cornelius is a wealthy man. He has personal attendants. He has assistants. He has his whole household, which includes all of his servants, his children if he had any, or maybe his grandchildren if he had any, his wife and all her personal attendants. We know that Cornelius had influence. There were some devout soldiers under Cornelius' charge. So I would reckon that some of them were there. His close family members and a lot of his close friends are there. Cornelius has called together a large gathering, which, friends, is a good thing in the providence of God that there were a lot of people there. And I'll tell you why. Now, the angel didn't tell Cornelius to call together a crowd, did he? He just said, send for Peter. So Cornelius says, well, thinks to himself in his mind, if this message is important enough for me to send for a man named Peter and to see an angelic vision, I want to call together a bunch of people. This has got to be good. So he invites his family, his friends, and his household, and they're all gathered in this room. Maybe a large auditorium of sorts or a ballroom or something that was in Cornelius's house. But they're all gathered there together to hear this. And that is providential. That was a good thing. You know why that was a good thing? If it was just Cornelius that got saved that day, what would the apostles back in Jerusalem have thought? They would have said, this is just an aberration. It's a freak of nature that a Gentile got saved. But when a whole crowd of Gentiles get saved and receive the Spirit... The apostles are forced to recognize that God is opening the door to the Gentiles. Which is why it's good that there were a lot of people there to hear that message. That was all in the providence of God. He had directed that. And you see how he had prepared the soil of these people's hearts to receive the Word. So Peter shows up and there's all of these people there. They're waiting for him. And Cornelius does what would just seem natural and normal for Cornelius to do. He falls down and he worships Peter. He falls down and he gives him homage. Now in Cornelius' mind, he's thinking to himself, anybody who's fingered by an angel as a messenger of God has got to be important enough to receive worship or homage or adoration. So Peter walks in and Cornelius doesn't know that he's just a man and he falls down and he starts to worship Peter. And the text says that Peter reached down and raised him up and said, get up, stand up on your feet. I too am just a man. Now you remember that Paul was worshipped on one occasion. Acts chapter 14 Paul and Barnabas went into Lystra, they healed a cripple, and the crowds came rushing out. And they said, the gods have become like men and come down to us. And they wanted to bring out uh, uh, oxen and sheep and begin to sacrifice them to Paul. They called Barnabas uh, Zeus and Paul Hermes because Paul was the chief speaker. And they started to worship and sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas rushed into the crowd and tore their clothes and said, don't sacrifice to us, we're here to tell you to turn from this vain idol worship. Then they stoned him. If you're not going to worship them, then just stone them. This is what they decided to do. This had to have been tremendously embarrassing for Peter. He comes in here, and this guy falls down to worship, and Peter has to raise him up. I, too, am just a man. What an admission that is, huh? 
Any hint of superiority in that statement? Finally, Peter gets it, right? You and I, Cornelius, together, I too, I likewise am just a man. Cornelius, there's no difference between you and me. I like the way John Stott put it. He said, Peter refuses both to allow Cornelius to treat him like he's a god, and Peter refused to treat Cornelius like he was a dog. Because both of them are equally sinful. It is just as sinful to deify a man as it is to degrade a man and to look down on a man because of, his pre- because of your prejudices. So that's what Peter does. He lifts him up. And then, of course, there, apparently there's some small talk because it says as they were talking, Cornelius led Peter into this room. And there's a gathering here, a large gathering of people. Now, Cornelius must be a man of action to do this because he knew he was sending for a Jew. Cornelius knew how Jews felt about him, a Roman, centurion, Gentile. So Cornelius had no reason to believe, naturally speaking, that Peter would be willing to even come to his home. It's been four days since he sent his his messengers away to the house of Simon to get Peter. Cornelius has no reason to think that Peter should even be willing to step foot in his house. But yet, however, nonetheless, Cornelius believes that since the angel told him, send for Peter... He believes that God is going to do whatever it takes to get Peter into his house. And so he goes through the process of gathering together all of these people to hear Peter. Believing that Peter is going to show up on the fourth day. And that God will do whatever God has to do to get this Jew into a Gentile home. Which is exactly what God did. So all these people are gathered there together. And Peter says something that to you and I might sound a little insulting. You yourselves know how unlawful it is that I should be here. Me, a Jewish man, to be with you, a foreigner, and to visit with you. You know how unkosher that is. The word is translated unlawful in the NASB and some of your other translations. It's really not the word that means against the law. It really is a word that means against social taboos, against cultural prescriptions, against what is culturally acceptable. You yourselves are aware that culturally it is completely unacceptable for me as a Jewish man to be here with you, a bunch of Gentiles. Now, does that sound like Peter's trying to break down any walls that might exist between the Jews And the Gentiles with a statement like that? It almost sounds insulting, isn't it? You know it's not insulting? Peter's doing what Peter really should have done, which is explain to them how it is that he as a Jew could be in the presence of these Gentiles. He's not putting up a wall between him and his listeners. He's telling them how it is that the wall has been taken down. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. You see, if that group of Gentiles was allowed to think that that prejudice still existed in the heart of Peter, then everything that Peter would say from that moment onward would sound disingenuous, artificial, forced, insincere. Because they would in their minds be thinking, what's this Jew doing in a Gentile home? And how is it that he can come in here? He's got to be here against his will. It can't be because he really thinks that we're on equal par with him because he has this superior attitude towards Gentiles. So Peter has to explain to them, You yourselves know, culturally it's unacceptable for me to be here. But God has shown me, that is no more. So he has to explain to them how it is that he can be there. And then he asks Cornelius a question which kind of seems silly. So tell me why it is that you've sent for me. Peter, don't you know that? You asked the three men at the gate, why did you send for me? Why are you looking for me? And they said, Cornelius, a devout man well spoken of by all the Jews, was praying at the ninth hour and he saw an angel and the angel directed him to send us to fetch you because you have a message. They had told him that. 
And I'm sure that it had come up over dinner that night after they had explained it to him. I'm sure that it came up on their travel the next day halfway to Caesarea. I'm sure that it must have come up over one of the meals or that night as they stayed on their way to Caesarea. And I'm sure it must have come up before they got to Caesarea. I'm sure that they had discussed what it was that Cornelius had seen and what had happened and why Peter was coming. Yet Peter asks, why have you sent for me? Could it be that Peter just wanted to have Cornelius say it himself? Could it be that this is Peter's way of sort of breaking the ice and just getting right to the heart of the matter? So tell me again why it is that I'm here. Maybe Peter's sort of pumping Cornelius to find out how much about all of this does Cornelius understand? Where's he at spiritually? How receptive is him? Is he? In your sharing of Christ, you've got to do the same thing. You know, you might lead in with a question like, if you were to die and go to heaven today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's a good ice-breaking question. You know, you're talking about the weather or sports or football or something. You say, well, speaking of spiritual things, if you were to die today, where do you stand with Christ? I think that's kind of the, the, the mentality behind Peter's question. Why is it that you've sent for me, Cornelius? Let's get down to the where the rubber meets the road here. All of these nice exchanges, you know, you worshiping me and all of that stuff, that's all fine and good, but we need to get to the heart of the issue, which is, why did you send for me? And so Cornelius tells him, I was praying. And Cornelius goes through the whole story, which to us is old news because we read it at the beginning of the chapter. I was praying. I saw the vision. The angel instructed me to send for you. And then Cornelius says, it is nice that you've come. And it's good that you've come here to us. And now Cornelius says, so we're all here before you. Tell us what it is that God has instructed you. Now, you could not ask for a more receptive audience to the gospel than that, could you? You could not ask for anything better than that. Peter? You are a messenger of God. Tell us, what is it that God wants you to share with us? That's like having somebody come up to you and say, how do I get to heaven? You're not asked that question every day. And look at the difference between this crowd and crowds that Peter has been in front of before. Acts chapter 2, that crowd of Jews standing there on the day of Pentecost, they said, they're drunk with wine. They accused them of drunkenness. Hardly a receptive audience. And yet 3,000 people got saved that day. Acts chapter 3, standing in the temple, having healed the beggar, everybody comes up to him, kind of a hostile crowd of Jews. Acts chapter 4, before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 5, with a death warrant on the head of the apostles. And Peter standing there before all of these hostile religious Jews. Look how different this is. Now he's standing before receptive Gentiles. Not quite what he's used to. He's used to arguing before hostile Jews. Now he's standing in front of a group of Gentiles who are... Their mouths are open, their ears are ready, their hearts are ready, and they're saying, Peter, tell us, what is it that God wants you to share with us? So that brings us to his message that he shares with Cornelius, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 34, Luke says, opening his mouth, Peter said, now opening his mouth is a phrase that an author would use to introduce a very important speech. And indeed, this is an important speech. Because for centuries there has been this animosity and Peter is about to sweep all of that animosity right out the door. Peter said to him, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Did he get the message? I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Now really, there's no reason Peter should not have gotten that message a long time ago. Because it wasn't the word that he stood on with all of his prejudices it was his social structure. It was his cultural taboos. It was all of the prescriptions and all of his thinking that God shared his prejudices. But Peter says, now I understand it. Now I understand that God is not one to show partiality. Peter finally got the, 
finally got what it was that Jesus meant when He said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and I'm going to gather them in as well in John chapter 10. Peter sees it now. The other sheep are the Gentiles. This has been God's plan all along. The Old Testament Scriptures spoke of a God who wasn't partial. A God who didn't show favoritism. Who didn't accept bribes. Who wasn't prejudiced. Deuteronomy chapter 10, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality. Second Chronicles 19.7, Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord your God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality. Job 34.19, God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of His hands. Peter had read those verses. God is not partial. He doesn't play favorites. Now that's good news and that's bad news. You know why that's bad news? That God is not partial? It's bad news to the person who thinks that on judgment day God's going to be kinder with him than he is with somebody else. Because his grandparents were Christians. Or because he attended church all of his life. Or because he worked in a soup kitchen twice a year. It's bad to the person who thinks that somehow something about them is going to gain them favor in the sight of God on judgment day. That's bad news. God doesn't play favorites. Doesn't matter what you've done, what you've said, who you are, what your skin color is, what your economic standing is, what your nationality is. Doesn't matter anything about you. It makes no difference whatsoever. The standard is the same and God doesn't play favorites. But it's good news to me and it's good news to you because you and I understand that if God doesn't show partiality, then I'm acceptable to Him. And He's not looking for some skin color in me or some national background or something that I've done. Friends, I'm accepted on the same plane as any other Jew, any other Gentile, any other man or woman. He doesn't play favorites. So I don't have to worry about him treating apostles better than me or popular people better than me or artistic people better than me or athletic people better than me or richer people better than me. I don't have to worry about any of that. That's good news. There's bad news to the person who thinks that somehow God's going to play favorites on Judgment Day. He'll go easy with me because I kept the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah, He's not going to go any easier with you than he is with Hitler. And news for you, it's all the same. Because God doesn't play partial, play favorites. And He's not partial with one man over another man. So Peter says, this is what I've come to understand. That God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. That's not salvation by works. Peter isn't saying you're saved by fearing God and doing what's right. Peter is saying it does not matter what your national background is, what nationality you belong to, what nation you're part of, what race you're part of, what your background is, all people who fear God and do what is right are welcome to God. It's really a statement about the preparatory work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. There are certain men like Cornelius and his household who feared God and did what was right, and they were ripe candidates for the Gospel. You can tell that the Spirit had been working in their hearts. And Peter's point is it doesn't matter who you are, all are welcome to God on the same footing. And, the, and he's looking at Cornelius, who was a God-fearing man, who was a giving man, a generous man, a devout man, a religious man, a sincere man, but an unsaved man. And if there was anybody that could be saved by their sincerity or their devotion, it was Cornelius. So Peter says, it doesn't matter what nation you belong to, this is what I understand. The one who fears God and does what is right, you might substitute there, the individual who walks with God, is humble before God, trusts in His Son, does what is right, repents of his sin, and believes in Him, is welcome to God on that basis. Peter has to begin with what he's learned. And here's what he's learned. doesn't matter who you are, you're welcome to God on the same basis. 
Now, before we leave the subject of partiality, I'm going to answer a question that I think you might be asking in your minds. Here's the question. If God doesn't show favorites, if God doesn't play favorites, if He's not partial, then how is it that God could choose the Jews as a people and shower blessing and grace upon them if He doesn't play favorites? How could God choose the Jews? That's a good question, isn't it? I'm glad you asked it. If God doesn't play favorites, if He's not partial... How could He choose the Jewish people? Isn't that an act of partiality? Isn't that an act of favoritism? Isn't that a prejudice against non-Jews on behalf of God? No, it's not. All the way through the Scriptures, God's choice of the nation of Israel is presented not as an act of partiality, but as an act of grace. Do you understand the difference? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You say, that's favoritism, that's partiality, that's prejudice toward the Jews in favor of them. Verse 7, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. In other words, listen, Israelites, there wasn't anything in you that caused God to choose you. It wasn't because you were smarter. It wasn't because you were better. It wasn't because you were more spiritually inclined to serve Him. It wasn't because you were better looking or more numerous or more powerful or wealthier. Or it wasn't anything in you. It was by His grace. He chose Abraham. Why Abraham? It's not based upon anything in Abraham. based upon something in God. And it's just like your election. If God chose you because of something He foresaw that you would do, because you were more spiritually inclined and you would eventually choose Him, people, that's favoritism. That's partiality. He chose me because of nothing in me, but because of everything in Him. That's grace. That's grace. That's the difference. Why did He choose the Jews? Because of something in Him. Not because of anything in them. If it were something in them, it would be partiality. It was something in Him which made it an act of grace. And so He showered His blessings out upon them, and He does so to us as an act not of favoritism, but of grace. Now Peter goes on to give to them really a straightforward, logical, chronological, easy, simple gospel presentation. This is so much different than anything else we get from Peter in the other chapters that he's preached in. This message is completely different. Do you know why this message is different? Everything else he's preached is to Jews. This is to Gentiles. So there's no lengthy treatment of Old Testament texts. He doesn't quote the prophets and quote Moses and quote the Psalms and then give an explanation of them and apply it to the Savior. Peter just kind of gives the straightforward presentation of facts. Another thing that's different is Peter doesn't level accusations at Cornelius like he did in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 to the people that he was preaching to then. Do you remember what he said to them? You crucified the Lord of glory. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You put to death the Son of Life and the Son of Righteousness. The Messiah, you killed Him. You hung Him on a cross. Peter doesn't do that to Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't even in Jerusalem when that happened. He wasn't responsible for that. The other thing Peter doesn't do is he doesn't give a defense of the faith or a defense of who Jesus is or what Jesus did. Cornelius really presents to us a real good simple outline of a gospel presentation that you and I can use in sitting down in a restaurant and sharing Christ across the table with somebody else. He begins by saying, Jesus, look at verse 36, the word which God sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, and then he's little brackets there, He is Lord of all. You see that Lord of all? That's Jew and that's Gentile. He just sets it out right at the beginning. 
He's Lord over Jew. He's Lord over Gentiles. He brought the Gospel to the Jews, through the Jews, to the rest of the world. That is the Gospel of peace which God preached to the Jewish nation and then to the Gentile. And then Peter wants Cornelius to understand that's not favoritism. He's Lord of all people. Look at verse 37. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Um, Verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God appointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. He just gives a summary of who Jesus is and what He did. He was the anointed of God. He is the Christ of God. And Peter kind of assumes that Cornelius has some knowledge of what's going on. You yourselves know of all the things that happened. We're four or five years removed from the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. This is four, five, maybe six years out, word has spread of this new movement of Christianity. Word has spread about the crucifixion, about the resurrection, all the appearances, the church starting in Jerusalem, the inability of the religious leaders to produce a body even though they desperately wish there was one to produce, to squash this Christian movement. That word has spread. And Cornelius is familiar with some of these elements. You yourselves have heard about Jesus who was anointed by God and how He went about doing good. And I think that Peter at this point probably inserted some of the things that Jesus did. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see. made the deaf to speak and to hear. He walked on water. He multiplied bread and fish. He raised the dead. All of those things that Jesus did. He went about delivering all who were oppressed by the devil, demonstrating that He was the anointed of God. That's sort of Peter's explanation of who Christ is. Then he says, they put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. And the they is a reference to the Jews amongst whom Jesus did all of these things. Now Peter wants us to understand that he's an eyewitness of all of these miracles that he's saying Jesus did. I was there. I saw it. I saw him raise the dead. I saw him heal the sick. I saw him walk on water. I saw him calm the storm. I was there when he multiplied the bread and the fishes and fed the multitudes. I saw all of that. Peter says, I'm a witness of those things. But then they put him to death. They, all of the religious leaders, the high priest, the priesthood, the people of Israel who shouted for His blood, they crucified Him. They hung Him on a cross. And Cornelius would know enough of the Old Testament Scriptures and enough of Jewish belief to understand that anybody who died on a cross died under a curse. So you might ask, how is it that you reconcile those two things? Being the anointed, chosen of God, and dying under a curse. How could the Messiah die under a curse? Well, far from taking away from His messianic credentials, the death of Christ actually serves to authenticate or to accentuate His messianic credentials because Peter says in verse 40, God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible. And not just to everybody, but to those whom God chose beforehand to be witnesses of the resurrection. And then Peter could say, I am such a witness. Not only did I see Him do all of the powerful miracles and perform all of these things, but I am a witness to the fact that God raised up His Son on the third day. And granted that He become visible. And so Christ not only died and He was buried, but He rose again and He presented Himself alive to hundreds of people, men chosen beforehand, with infallible proof. Touch Me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And Peter says, we ate with Him and we drank with Him. He demonstrated He was alive by appearing to people. He demonstrated that it was a physical resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection, by eating and drinking. Spirits don't eat and drink. See, I have flesh. And Peter could say, I saw him, I heard him, I ate dinner with him, I drank with him, I handled the word of life. We were witnesses of his resurrection. Now that's a simple gospel presentation, isn't it? 
Here's who Christ is. Here's what Christ did. He died, he buried, he was risen again, and he appeared to witnesses who saw that he had been raised from the dead. Now, if all of that is true, then there are certain implications to that message. Verse 42 and 43 is Peter's conclusion to his message. Verse 42, He ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed as by God as judge of the living and the dead. Peter's message to the people, Cornelius, you want to understand what it is that God has commanded us to preach? Here it is. He has ordered us to preach that there is coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed and He's furnished proof by raising him from the dead. That's his point. God has appointed this man as judge of all men. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, will all stand before Christ and give an account. Because God has appointed Him not only as Lord of all, but as judge of all. Boy, that's somber, isn't it? First Peter chapter 4, verse 5, Peter says, All men will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's all men. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. And Jesus said in John 5, The Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's Him. He will stand on His throne, and all men will stand before Him, and the books will be opened, and the standard will be the same. There will be no partiality, no favoritism, no prejudices. The standard is the same for all men. Now that's bad news to Cornelius. That's bad news to any sinner who doesn't know Christ. But that's where you got to start, isn't it? What is it that God has commanded me, Cornelius? It's this. He's appointed a man who's going to judge the entire world in righteousness. He has appointed him as judge of the living and the dead, all men, Jew and Gentile. Cornelius, you will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. That's the bad news Cornelius had to understand before Cornelius could really appreciate the good news, which is that not that Jesus Christ is judge of all, but verse 43 that He is Savior of all. Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone, Cornelius. Jew and Gentile. The invitation is open to all men. All men may come. All men are invited. All men are encouraged to come to the water and to drink freely of the fountain of life. All men are commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust Him for salvation. And here's the promise. To everyone who believes on His name, not who works righteousness, not who fears God, not who does good deeds or keeps the Ten Commandments, but to everyone who places their faith on and believes in His name, there is the precious result of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sins. Now Cornelius has been confronted with the reality that he is a sinner. Cornelius, he is the judge of the living and the dead and you're going to stand before him. But here's the good news. To everyone that believes on Him, He grants forgiveness. That's what you desperately need, Cornelius. Forgiveness. Now what happens next amazes everybody who's standing there and sees it. I don't think Peter can really appreciate what goes on. I think he's kind of shocked. It's not something he expected. Probably not something he ever expected he would see. We're not going to deal with that this week. You can read ahead if you want and see what it is that he sees. But friends, I want you to notice something for you. Notice how simple and straightforward his presentation of truth is. Really, Peter has answered four essential questions. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the anointed of God who delivered people from sin, sickness, and Satan. What did he do? He died and rose again and appeared to people as proof that he is victor and Lord of life. Why do I need him? 
Because He is the judge of the living and the dead. How do I receive Him? You believe in His name and you receive the forgiveness of sins. Friends, can you follow those four points? And you can give those four points over a table. You can give those four points over a phone. You can give those four points through email. That's the simple presentation of the gospel. Not difficult, not technical, not not hard to explain, not hard to articulate. I don't think that Peter really tried to make it any more difficult than that. Here it is, Cornelius. Here's what you need to know to be saved. Who Jesus is, what He did, why you need Him, and what you get. How you receive Him. It's simple outline of the Gospel. Now some of you here are believers. Some of you here maybe are not believers. You're in verse 42, not verse 43. Verse 42, you're facing Him as judge of the living and the dead, not as the Savior of all who believe on Him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never trusted Christ, friends, the bad news is that He is the judge of the living and the dead and you'll stand before Him. The good news is that if you believe on Him and trust in Him and come to Him in repentance and in faith, He accepts you. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what your nationality is. doesn't matter what your past is. Anything about you. He shows no partiality or favorites. And He will accept you just like He accepted Cornelius, just like He accepted Peter, and just like He accepts millions of others. Because the gospel is open to all men, to everyone who believes in Him. He gives forgiveness of sins. And if you don't know Christ, then I would implore you on Christ's behalf today to be reconciled to God. Do not give sleep to your eyes until you have forgiveness for your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for the gospel message which we are reminded again of today. Lord, the gospel is not just for sinners. It's not just for the unconverted, but it is good for the believers to hear the gospel as well. And we pray, Father, that You would help us to remember how easy it is and give us the grace to share Christ with those in our lives, our relatives, our friends, our family members, people who are close, people we run into in the store, to share with them the simple Gospel. And we pray, Father, that You would go ahead of us and prepare people's hearts. And I would ask, Father, that if there's somebody here this morning who has never trusted Christ and does not know Him as Savior, that they would not spend eternity knowing Him as their judge. I would ask, God, that you would not allow anybody to give rest to their eyes until they have forgiveness for their souls. We thank you for Christ and all that he did for us, and we remember him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.